Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. In July 2020, the government published an R&D roadmap, which had, as one of its key elements, addressing regional inequalities in R&D funding. This is in the context of the wider drive under the current government for levelling up different nations and regions of the UK. A new report published by the Higher Education Policy Institute, HEPI, on the 13th of May 2021, digs below the surface of this problem. With me to discuss their findings are the authors of that report, all from University College London. They are Sarah Chater, Director of Research Strategy and Policy, Grace Gottlieb, Head of Research Policy, and Graham Reed, Chair of Science and Research Policy. Welcome to you all. Graham, maybe I can start with you. What was the purpose of this new report for HEPI and what would you say were some of the key findings? Hello, Gavin. The contribution that R&D makes to economic and social development is widely documented. And there would appear to be a compelling case for R&D to be part of this country's attempts uh, to tackle regional disparities in wealth and opportunity. We are certainly behind that idea. Now, successive governments have tried to use research and development for regional economic uh, development before. And all too often, these attempts have begun with lots of enthusiasm and good intentions, but then been cut short before they have time to deliver results. And we felt that the UK really needs to do better in future. So we wanted to get under the skin of the evidence rather than just the received wisdom that lies behind these regional interventions. And it caused us to look at the relationship between national, regional and local initiatives, the objectives that have been set out for previous interventions and the sorts of time horizons. We've looked then at geographic patterns of investment in R&D. And we find a bit of a gap between the received wisdom and what the evidence actually says. And we can't help wondering if this gap has weakened some of the previous regional interventions. We found that there's a, that there's a difference between received wisdom and the evidence when it comes to the level of research concentration in the UK compared to other countries. We don't think there's enough recognition given to the variations in R&D investment within regions. So a lot of focus on between regions, what about within regions? And another factor that doesn't get much airtime is the effect of funding research at less than its full economic cost. And what that does when you try to raise research investment in a previously underinvested part of the country. So this attempt to make future interventions more robust in terms of evidence and to encourage policymakers to face some of the really rather awkward questions that have often remained unanswered when previous regional initiatives were designed. That's what we were trying to do. Really interesting. 
And let's dive into some of those issues in a little bit more detail. As you mentioned, some previous reports have suggested that the UK is unusually unequal geographically, at least in terms of economic output, and have drawn a link between that and geographic concentration of research. But your findings are that the UK has less geographic concentration of research than other major research nations. Grace, over to you. Talk us through what you found. Thanks, Gavin, and thanks for having us today. So yes, we would agree the UK does have some of the greatest regional inequalities in the world. We don't dispute that. We also don't dispute the fact that looking at an absolute level, R&D funding is concentrated in certain regions in the UK. But what we wanted to do was to benchmark that concentration of R&D funding in the UK against other major research nations to get a sense for how typical our level of concentration is. So in order to do that, we looked at the percentage of national funding that goes to each of the major regions within those countries. And we plotted it on a graph to see whether, whether that line is relatively flat, indicating that R&D funding is pretty evenly spread across different regions, or whether there's a strong peak indicating a level of concentration where particular regions get quite high proportions of the national R&D funding. And what we found to our surprise was that actually the US and Germany were far more concentrated than the UK and China, the other comparison nation, than we expected. And we also included the EU as a whole, which was also more concentrated when you look at the member states as regions. So to, to give you an example, in the US and Germany, the two regions that received the highest R&D funding within those nations, which were California and Baden-Württemberg respectively, they each attract about 28% of the national R&D funding, uh, which is, is very high. Whereas in the UK, the equivalent figure, so the largest R&D spend goes to the Southeast, and that percentage that the Southeast takes up is um, 19%, so 28 versus 19, which is quite a big difference. Very interesting, and perhaps not what people would suspect, having seen some of the other work in this area. Sarah, I want to come to you next. And one of the things that Graham picked up in his uh, first comments was the difficulties of actually measuring some of these things and measuring geographical distribution. One of the things you mentioned in the report is, is the dilemma of denominators. What is this issue and why is it such a dilemma? Thanks, Kevin. I mean, the issue, simply put, is that there isn't one single authoritative way to look at a geographic distribution of R&D spending. So you can look, come up with very different pictures according to the particular metric that you use. Um, if we take London as an example, we looked at how it ranks on overall R&D spend, where it appears third amongst UK regions. But if we looked at it in terms of a regional GDP, then it appears 10th. And we effectively discovered that you can apply a number of different denominators and come up with endless different graphs and bar charts in different orders, according to the specific denominator you use. So the reason we framed it as a dilemma is because we need to decide what particular distribution we should be attempting to change and then why we're attempting to change that distribution. So what are the metrics we should use? What will the impact be? And do we actually look at using the same metric of distribution across all regions and localities, or do we need a more nuanced approach? Um, and that takes us, I think, to a further dilemma, which is that these quite broad metrics and denominators don't necessarily show the regional picture in sufficient detail and can disguise variation within regions, as, as Graham has already noted. So let's get into that 
question of what's happening within regions. This issue, I guess, of granularity, how large an area is in terms of analysis of regional differences and, and, and the variations within that area, whatever size you choose. Grace, back to you. How important is this question of granularity and how big are some of these sort of intra-regional differences? We think it's it's actually very important and often overlooked. And I'll explain a bit about the background in terms of how you can actually compare these things. So typically, when we look at comparisons of UK regions in terms of R&D funding, we use what are called nuts one regions. So for example, London, East Midlands, Southeast, Yorkshire and the Humber, etc. These are all nuts one regions. And these are all quite varied regions in terms of size, in terms of the nature of them, characteristics, etc. But you can also look one level deep. So nuts one regions are subdivided into nuts two regions and subdivided further into nuts three regions. And we wanted to see, you know, how much variation is there actually within these nuts one regions? Uh, so we, we put on what we like to call our granularity goggles. And um, we looked at the variation be- between nuts two regions. So for example, in the Southeast, which is a nuts one region, uh, the total region receives about seven billion pounds. This ranges from the nuts two region of Berkshire, Buckinghamshire and Oxfordshire receiving nearly four billion pounds uh, to Kent receiving about 600 million pounds. Enormous variation. And we found that actually the overall nuts one regions that receive the higher levels of R&D investment tend to be the regions that have higher variation within them. Uh, so for example, two of London's five nuts two regions receive lower R&D spend than any of the nuts two regions within the Northeast, Northwest and Yorkshire and the Humber, uh, which is, is quite surprising. So the question that this raises is when we're thinking about leveling up, at what level of granularity are we looking? Do we want to level up across nuts one regions? Do we want to look a little level deeper about the variations within nuts one regions, which are quite varied in, in themselves. And, and then when we think about that, at what metric do we want to use in that context? So, so I guess we're building a picture for you. of There are lots of different lenses that you can look through when you're thinking about your metrics, uh, your outcomes, and, and how what you actually want to achieve. No, I can see that. And, and I certainly think that granularity goggles are going to be the key present uh, coming this Christmas. It's also interesting, some of what you've described in terms of levels, clearly some of those nuts two levels are actually quite small because they are part of a larger urban conurbation. And I wonder whether you feel that makes a difference because if people are really quite close to a more R&D wealthy nuts one region, was that something you factored into your thinking? It's a really good question, actually. And it's something that I've heard before when you look at things like uh, levels of inequality in East London, they can be distorted because the level of economic output in the city of London, which is relatively East, is enormously high. Uh, so that, that kind of distorts what you might actually be, be looking at. I'm not sure that we direct, directly address that question, but I suppose I could provide one example. Some people may think of London as a homogeneous whole, but of course we know it's very heterogeneous. Inner London, the west part of inner London, receives £3.7 billion, whereas the east part of inner London receives £810 million in R&D funding. So very close together geographically, but very different in terms of the amount of funding they receive. Graham mentioned earlier the 
issue of full economic cost for research grants. And clearly that affects all research institutions the same, and yet somehow it has an impact geographically. So explain why full economic cost issues have a particular impact on R&D concentration geographically. It's, it's a really important question and quite a niche, nerdy issue, but one that can actually have quite substantial ramifications, um, particularly in this context. So UK research funders, on average, provide 71% of the cost of research in universities. Um, and the remaining 29% of that cost is made up by other funding streams. So often tuition fees, often international tuition fees, for example. And institutions that are large, that are used to receiving like high amounts of R&D funding, they have a kind of operation where they have a lot of students, they have the funding streams more sorted, I suppose, than perhaps other institutions that aren't used to receiving high amounts of R&D funding. So when you're thinking about levelling up research funding and expanding research funding in a region that isn't used to receiving high amounts of R&D funding, by handing them grants, you're handing them deficits associated with those grants. And they may not be well-placed to fill the funding gap associated with those grants. And and what we really want to do is to make the system more sustainable, to to fund research at a higher rate of of FEC and uh, to tip the balance more of the dual support system further um, towards QR funding rather than project funding uh, to ensure that there's less of that deficit associated with research grants. So institutions all across the UK can take on large amounts of R&D funding without taking on a, a major deficit. We don't want to end up putting more financial pressure on the parts of the country that we're actually trying to help. And, and one example that, that really stands out to me is that the University of Dundee uh, has described itself as financially vulnerable due to the structural, un- structural issue of underfunding of research in the UK. And as a result, they've decided they're not going to be targeting growth in their research income. They don't want more research grants because they can't afford the deficit that's associated with those grants. That is a very interesting point, one that you often hear quietly said by one or two vice chancellors, but you don't hear publicly stated so often. You mentioned Dundee, and actually I was going to ask Graham, the the report and the analysis you've done, is this primarily about England or does it have implications for the other devolved nations in the UK? This is emphatically about the whole of the United Kingdom. The challenge of regional disparity in wealth and opportunity is UK-wide, and the research base is UK-wide. We've got very high quality research everywhere from Aberdeen to Exeter, from Bangor to Bournemouth. This this is the, the whole of the United Kingdom. That said, the devolved governments have some advantages over England in that they should be better able to connect their research policy with other areas of devolved policy in ways that might be more challenging in some of the English regions. I think that provides opportunities for different parts of the UK to learn from one another. But to be absolutely clear, this covers all four nations of, the, of our country. And you mentioned there some of the responses. What does that mean in terms of policy? What should national governments be doing? What should the devolved governments be doing? And indeed, regional authorities, what should their response be? 
One of the, the challenges that has often been sidestepped in previous initiatives is to articulate clearly the relationship between local, regional and national agenda. Grace has talked a lot about the, the, the local granularity of R&D. What are we trying to level up? Are we trying to make a region homogenous or a locality homogenous or the whole nation? I think that to articulate that clearly, we need a stronger dialogue between civic authorities at national, regional and local levels. This is not something that's going to be done effectively by central government and then imposed on regions and localities. It's a partnership between them. And so what should these different layers of government do? They should join forces to tackle this pressing and stubborn challenge that is faced all over the country. And while I'm on that theme, I think that a stronger role for civic authorities at regional and local levels really is an imperative here. If civic authorities at regional and local levels don't have any enthusiasm for this agenda, then it's really difficult to see how you can use research and development investment to address local and regional economic challenges. So I think that we're, we're making a sort of call to arms for regional and local authorities to engage more in research policy. And some clearly are very engaged in their regions and some perhaps less so. Sarah, I wanted to come back to you and ask you what the role of universities was in all of this. Do we maybe need more collaboration and less competition for resources for universities? Yeah, I would certainly say so. I mean, I think as Graham has, has just set out, universities can play a really critical role in working with local and regional authorities to strengthen local and regional leadership and to better respond to regional needs. I mean, I think it's important to reflect that actually every region of the UK currently has at least one research intensive university within it. So there's a good framework there already um, of distributed research strength around the country. But it's also the case that every region has cold spots with low R&D intensity and where there are weak links between universities and the broader community. And it seems to me that collaboration has been underutilised as a way to better connect the existing capabilities that we have to local needs that exist. So I think there's a strong imperative to just rethink a little bit of how we have traditionally organized our research funding and think about what collaboration might offer. Can it, for example, help to move islands of excellence from competing against each other for funding to thinking more about how they can work together to form archipelagos? Can it help universities to think about how they might pool their expertise to address regional priorities? Um, there are sort of case study examples of this all over the UK at the moment. Um, examples like academics from LSE and Cambridge and UCL working with the Greater Manchester Authority to address some of their priorities or research studies that started in Bradford that are now being used to look at poverty in Tower Hamlets. So I think there are real possibilities there to think about how universities are pooling the expertise that they have and bringing it together to address those priorities, as well as pooling their capabilities to translate research and expertise into other sectors. There might also be scope for universities to share some of their different strengths, whether it's about being research intensive and winning grants, whether it's about working with local business and communities, whether it's about particular areas of expertise, 
all of this still remains relatively unexplored. And although we've seen some promising developments, I think, from some of the more recent research England funding streams, they feel very much like the start of a series of what could be different experiments and mechanisms to promote this approach to collaborative funding and getting universities to work together. Um, but our starting point should very much be that we need to think about how we harness the strengths that we have, wherever they are, to think about really delivering for the regions across the UK. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot now, Sarah, because I've just promoted you to the science minister for the day. You've got the R&D roadmap. Obviously, the UK government has got a commitment to take action in this area. And you've done your analysis. And we, we understand the problem is much more complicated than perhaps some people realise. But what should the government be doing in, say, the next two to three years as it starts to address some of these issues? So I'm going to try and give you a very ministerial answer and say that at this point, we haven't necessarily offered detailed policy prescriptions. But what we have done is set out six key principles that we think need to underpin um, regional R&D policy and that could help to address some of the, the perhaps the inconvenient questions that we've raised in the report. And I think the first of these is not that surprising, but it's worth emphasising, which is that we really need a clear purpose for, for levelling up and for what the role of R&D policy and funding is specifically in that. So it can't just be about chucking money at regions beyond the southeast and hoping for the best. We need to know what we're trying to achieve and we need to know how we're going to measure it. So I think moving away from what is currently perhaps a lack of clarity on, on the role of R&D, on the optimal distribution of funding and on the particular outcomes we'd like to see um, would be a good starting point. But that also takes me to a really critical point, I think, which is we've spent a lot of time in this discussion um, and in the wider debate focusing around funding. A key conclusion of our report is that actually it's about impact as much as it's about outputs. So it's not just about the money, it's about what that money delivers. And the danger of focusing too much on where the funding goes is that what that tells us is that there's been an input to research somewhere. It doesn't tell us what's happened as a result of that research. It doesn't tell us how that's benefited the local economy. It doesn't tell us about the social and cultural benefits within regions. So I think that's what we really need to start shifting the debate to. And that's what the purpose of R&D policy should be to really enhance economic and social benefits across the UK. Um, and related to that, that means it could be research undertaken within a particular region. It could be research undertaken elsewhere, but then applied within a region to deliver some of those benefits. Another really critical thing that would be certainly top of my policy list is the need, as Grace has already alluded to, to fund research sustainably. So if we increase funding on the current model, we're increasing the contributions required from universities to support research. So as Grace has said, more sustainable funding avoids increasing research deficits in less research intensive regions. If it's delivered in the form of a boost for QR, then what that also does is enable the local flexibility and responsiveness in individual universities to respond to new funding opportunities, to respond to partnerships, to really be able to build their engagement with businesses and others in the region beyond universities. And to think about what Graham was talking about in terms of how to strengthen local civic leadership. A couple of other things. We've talked about the need to increase partnerships and collaborations. I would particularly like to see, I suppose, attention given to doing that along three different priorities. Firstly, how to bring institutions with different characteristics together to build partnerships of mutual benefit. 
Secondly, to think about how to build collaborations between more and less research intensive regions and what they would deliver both regionally and for the UK as a whole. And related to that, thirdly, how to leverage our national research strengths to better address regional priorities and really make that a mission for universities to think about. The final point is really about how we enhance regional leadership of R&D, I think, and Graham's spoken about this already, but thinking about any new initiatives being introduced, a basic principle is that they should be done with regions and by regions, they shouldn't be done to regions from Whitehall. Um, and part of that, of course, will need to be thinking through how we integrate the local, the regional, the national, and have a coherent framework for research that is delivering both on regional and national priorities, is avoiding unnecessary duplication, but is a genuine collaborative mutual endeavour, not something that's imposed top down with a great deal of enthusiasm, but perhaps less careful consideration of what's ultimately in mind. And that's my list. Fantastic. Well, let's see just how much of that our colleagues in Bayes take up. But as you've made very clear, it's not just Bayes, it is uh, local and regional authorities right across the UK. That's all we've got time for. But Sarah Chater, Grace Gottlieb, Graham Reed, thank you all very much. Thank you, Gavin. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks, Gavin. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My three guests this week, all from University College London, were Sarah Chater, Director of Research Strategy and Policy, Grace Gottlieb, Head of Research Policy, and Graeme Reed, Chair of Science and Research Policy. Their new report on regional policy and R&D is available on the website of the Higher Education Policy Institute. And there is also a link to the report on the podcast page of the Foundation's website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on the Foundation's website are details of our, all our events, our journal, our blogs, and all previous editions of this podcast. Next week, we'll be discussing the international efforts to reduce biodiversity loss, and my guest will be Professor Yadvinder Mali from the University of Oxford. Until then, goodbye.